0: Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also wanted to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor. And we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. God bless.
1: All right. Good morning, Renewed Church. How are you on this cold, cold morning? Hope you guys are doing well. If I could get your attention up here, I know it's fun to talk, and sounds like you have a lot of good news in your life, and that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you're able to just share about the blessings that you've uh, you've had. Well, uh, you know, we are on a four-week series on the gospel, and uh, so last week we started our series. And, um, you know, by God's grace, we're going to continue on, and we're pretty excited about it. But I've got a question for you. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Okay, bad news. It's always the bad news first. Everybody wants to hear the bad news first. And uh, we said that last week, uh, the bad news was the wrath of God, right? That God is angry with sin. And we said that because he is a just God. And since God is just, he has a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it. And we said that because this is the right expression of who he is, not only does he have a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it, but God has a right to punish sin wherever he finds it. And we talked about not only is this true, and here's where the bad news gets even worse, that God is angry with humanity, every man and every woman, all of mankind, because of their sin. And that God will judge every sin from the greatest atrocity to the smallest motive. We said that he is the perfect accountant, that not one item will slip his attention, that God is the perfect detective, that he will continue to hound and chase perpetrators to the very end. That he is the perfect prosecutor. That he's building an airtight case. That he is the perfect judge. That he will punish every sin. And so mankind, we said, does not do well with the knowledge of God. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter one, mankind suppresses it. It's too horrific. It's too traumatic. And so they build a user-friendly God, they fashion a a God that uh, is more like them, is made in their image, someone that they can relate with, someone that is not going to be angry with them. And you know, that is what God is so angry about, the suppression of the knowledge of what we've just shared. But we cannot suppress His knowledge forever. We can't keep pretending that this doesn't exist because there is, t- there is coming a time when we will face God. And that's the bad news, isn't it? We cannot make ourselves right before God. You know, uh, I heard uh, after I gave this message, uh, somebody came up to me and said, this is really traumatic. It's a traumatic truth. I said, yes it is, praise God. It is traumatic, but it's meant to be traumatic. Remember, I had you guys all pinky promise. And you did that last week. And so you are bound, right, as a commitment to me to continue listening to what the gospel has to say. We can't make ourselves right before God. We're broken because of the fall. And we're unable because of sin. But God will judge every person according to their sins. That's bad news, amen? Do you wanna hear the good news this morning? Amen, okay. I'm gonna share with you a true story, if we could put the next slide up, of a man who lived in the 16th century, okay? We're gonna call him Martin. He was one of the greatest minds of his day. He was going to be a lawyer, and he was studying to be a lawyer. One time, uh, a storm had hit, and lightning struck very close to his horse, and he fell off his horse, and he almost died. Later that day, he began to review his life uh, in light of eternity. He had an introspective moment where he continued to look at his life, and he came to the conclusion that life is short, that he would one day have to face God. And so because of that, he decided, I'm going to give my whole life to God. Now, back then in that culture, in that time, uh, when you decided to give your life to God, this meant that you would become a monk. So he decided that he was going to join a monastery, join an order, but he decided not just any order, he wanted to make God happy, so he joined the oldest, strictest, holiest order, the Augustinian order of monks. And he said this, if I do this, then surely this will make me right before God. Now he was one of the greatest minds of his day, and so at the monastery they made him a scholar. And his job was to study the Bible. And he studied it 24-7. He translated it, he taught it, he immersed himself in the Word of God. And as he did, he realized that the Bible presented God as a perfectly just and holy God who will judge the world. Now Martin understood the truth that God hates sin. And he will punish all uh, godlessness (coughs) and wickedness of men. He studied Romans chapter 1. And what happened is that produced great anxiety in his life because as he saw his life, he saw conspicuously his sin. And so he decided, because he was a very driven man, that I'm gonna remedy that. My quest is to, is to become holy. And so that's what he did. He prayed incessantly, long drawn out prayers for days at a time. And along with that, he fasted so much and so long that he permanently damaged his body. He went on pilgrimages. holy sites. He venerated saints. He gave to charities. He served the community tirelessly. Everything that in that culture told him how to be holy. He even went to Rome, which was big in that culture, and he climbed the steps of St. Peter's church, kissing each step and saying a prayer. He practiced the extreme a discipline of self-mortification where he would whip his body every time he thought of an illicit thought. He would enter confessional every day and he would spend several hours a day confessing every sin that he committed no matter how small it was. And there are times that he would leave and he'd say, oh, I forgot a sin. And he would, he would go back in and he would tell the priest and confess it to the priest. And the priests were irritated with Martin. They were so irritated, they would say, hey, listen, man, just come when you've committed a substantial sin, to which Martin would say, isn't every sin in the sight of God substantial? You see, the more he tried to make himself right with God, the more he kept seeing his own sin. And he was so vexed that he went to the head of his order and he said, listen, I don't know what to do. I've been living the best I can and still I feel like a sinner. And the man said, God, don't you love God? That's what the head of his order said. And you know what he said? He said, love God. I hate God because all I see is an angry judge. I stand before him and I'm going to stand before a perfectly holy, perfectly just judge one day. How can I stand before that kind of awesome God on that day? My question is, who will save me from God? And it was at this time that here Martin came to really study the book of Romans. Do you want to hear good news this morning? Can you say amen? amen? Amen. In Romans chapter five, can we put it up? It says this in verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will be, shall we be saved through his life? And it was at that study that real peace flooded Martin Luther's soul. All the fears, all the anxieties, all the terrors melted away. It was in his striving to be righteous before God that Luther found no peace, but it was in God's gift of righteousness that Martin Luther would finally know peace. Let me say that again. It was in his striving to be righteous that he found no peace, but it was in God's gift of righteousness that he would finally know peace. Isn't that wonderful? And Martin Luther surmises or summarizes this part of his life and the struggle he went through and the salvation he found in these immortal words God held me, very good, those of you that know German, God held me over the very pit of hell until I learned his grace. You see, the good news that flooded Martin Luther's soul is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And that while we were unrighteous, God in his grace sent... His gracious gift, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. You see, God loves sinners. And that while we were his enemies, Jesus Christ died for us. Can I get an amen? This is amazing. I don't know how many times you've heard this. But it doesn't matter if you've heard it thousands of times. This is the gospel. God engineered his plan of salvation for us. He planned it. He prepared it. He initiated it. He executed it. All because of his love. The cross is God's gracious gift to us. Can we put up the next slide? You know, Luther said again, Gott ganada zu finden ist den Koit zu finden. To find God's grace is to find the cross. Have you ever thought about this? It's ironic that this terrible instrument used by Romans to torture their victims to death was used by God to save the world. The vehicle of hate was transformed as a vehicle of love. You see, I delight in the crucifixion of Jesus because it is a demonstration of God's love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the question. How is the crucifixion a demonstration of God's love for us? How is the crucifixion a demonstration of God's love? Well. In the next verse, Romans 5, 9, it says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So the question is, how are we saved from God's wrath through Jesus? The answer is in that we are justified through Jesus' blood. You see, justified (coughs) means to declare righteous. That God declares us righteous, not because of us, because we've already looked Uh, and we've seen that we are sinful, that we're sinners, that we don't have the ability to be righteous. God declares us righteous not because of who we are, but God declares us righteous because of Jesus' righteous sacrifice for us. You might say, well, Pastor Dave, how does that work? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? Uh, Here I have uh, two stuffed animals, and as God is my witness, uh, I want them to be goats. I have goats, actually, stuffed animals but I don't know where my daughter put them and I cannot find them. I I searched the whole week and I couldn't find them. So what I did was I picked two of her favorite dogs, okay? All right? Yes, uh, this one, uh, for the sake of this illustration, is gonna be named Pro. Can you say that, Pro? Okay, good. And this one will be named X. Can you say X? Okay, Pro and X, okay? So what I want you to do is this will help us, this illustration will help us see how this works. Uh, Pretend they're goats, okay? That's what you're going to do, all right, this morning. So at the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, can we put the next? Oh, that's good. You put it up. God's holiness was satisfied. We use the term propitiation, and that's what it stands for. Pro stands for propitiation. Say propitiation with me. Okay, there's a method to my madness, okay? And this is why I'm doing this. Propitiation. Now we're gonna see a fascinating picture of propitiation and it's found in the Old Testament, okay? In Leviticus chapter 16, God did something that he never did with any nation before. He decided to dwell with a particular nation. So God dwelt with Israel during what we call their wilderness wanderings. Remember when they were saved out of Egypt and they were going to the promised land and they had to travel in tents in the wilderness, right? Well, here God said, I want to travel with you. And so they built these tents, they would take them down, they would go to different places. These were basically mobile homes. So imagine the Israelites were living in a massive mobile home park as they would go from place to place. And God told Israel, make a mobile home for me as well. And that's what we call, and if we could put up the next slide, the tabernacle. Now this is an artist, artist rendering of God's mobile home, the tabernacle, okay? A huge tent. But as a reminder that God is holy and man is sinful, and God wanting to dwell with them, but God also being holy, uh, he can't live with sinfulness of man. The tabernacle required an army of priests continually making sacrifices. And if you look at that picture, you'll see those priests continually making sacrifices so that God could live with them. But there's one day every year. It was the holiest sacrifice would be made. And it was made on a day called Yom Kippur. Okay, Now those of you that have Jewish friends, you've heard that term before. Yom Kippur meant covering day. All right, So you would see all these armies of priests uh, making sacrifices, doing all this work. But on Yom Kippur, on covering day, uh, the high priest would enter, could we put the next slide up? This place called the Holy of Holies, okay? Now if you look, this is again an artist's rendering. You see a priest, that's the high priest, okay? And you see that ornate kind of barrier? That was a curtain. And that was what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, okay? Now this is really important. Indulge me as we understand this. This curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. This curtain was 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, a foot thick, and it was seamless, okay? Imagine how massive that would, if you went to Pottery Barn and tried to buy a curtain like that, you would never be able to, okay? Just a huge, huge curtain, 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, a foot thick, it was seamless, no seams, okay? This was meant to be a formidable barrier to say no one enters into the Holy of Holies. Now, what was the Holy of Holies? It was the place where God's presence concentrated. It actually was a representation of the throne of God, that God was so holy, so above his creation, that he stood alone, and the Ark of the Covenant was a picture of the throne of God. So this was the the representation. And that barrier meant that no one could accidentally enter into the presence of the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was a picture of God's holiness in his rulership, uh, on his throne. On Yom Kippur, the high priest would take two goats, okay, pro and ex, okay? They would take one of the goats, okay? And they would slit the throat of that goat, okay? I'm so sorry if you're little kids. You know, slitting the throat. My, my daughter, if she saw me do this, would be so angry. Okay, slit the throat of the goat. And the blood would pour into a basin. Okay? And now Crow is dead. Okay? Okay. So he would take that. He would take that. And what the high priest would do, he's, once a year, mind you, he would enter in and he would uh, sprinkle that blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. What we call the mercy seat of the throne of God. Now think about this. Within the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. God's expressed character. That was a representation of God's character. I want you to think of it this way. That when God looked in that massive mobile home park and he lived with these people that were his people, he noticed the Israelites were constantly breaking his commandments, right? They were constantly sinning and this angered God. But when God saw the blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat okay, and it covered over the righteous laws that had been broken, the Bible says that God was temporarily satisfied and that He pushed back His wrath another year. So that every year the same thing had to happen where God would push back His wrath for another year. Why? Because the book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin. It could only push it back. Now this begs the question, why did God prescribe the blood of animals to appease his wrath? I mean, was he sadistic? I'm not trying to be irreverent, but let's ask these questions. Was he sadistic? Did he just like to see blood all over the place? Or was he eccentric? Was one of his fetishes that he just liked to see animal goats torn apart? I mean, what was the reason? And here's the answer. On covering day, Yom Kippur foreshadowed something greater. You see, in God's plan, Jesus, the Messiah, was that perfect high priest, and when he he died on the cross, he came to the holiest place, not with a temporary sacrifice, okay, but with his own perfect blood to cover sins and to satisfy God's holiness. That was the picture that every year God was uh, allowing the Old Testament to see until His Messiah, His a Son came. You see, all the Old Testament sacrifices, imperfect to take away sin, foreshadowed the greatest sacrifice. That Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years, not for a million years, but for all eternity. Can I get an amen? Jesus was the propitiatory sacrifice. You see, on the cross, Jesus' last words before he died in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, do you remember what it was? He said, it is finished. Now many of us, when we listen to that or when we read that, we can misunderstand that Jesus was just announcing his death, that he was saying, okay, I'm gonna die now, and he was dying, it is finished. But you know, the word that is used for it is finished is the Greek word tetelestai. And tetelestai actually means my mission is completed. My mi- and that brings a whole different perspective, doesn't it? It is finished, my mission is completed. And this was a very common word used in the first century. It was a u- word used by a servant when he came back home at the end of a day. Every assignment his master had given him is completed. Tired but satisfied, he would sigh, To tell us, die. It is finished. I've completed all that the master has assigned me to do. It's the word used by an artist when he paints the last stroke of his masterpiece. Everything he has painstakingly created is done. And so he proudly steps back and exclaims, To tell us, die. It is finished. I have completed the work of my masterpiece. It is the word used by the athlete when he completes a long, grueling marathon. Every checkpoint is passed, every step has been endured. Exhausted but exhilarated, he would raise his hands and cry out, "Die! it is finished. I have completed the race that is set before me. It is the word used by the soldier after a brutal, hard-fought battle. He has successfully defeated the enemy, and he places his foot on the neck of his foe and roars, die, it is finished. I came, I fought, I conquered. It is used by the merchant as he puts down the last payment on his property. He has paid it in full. The building and the lot are his. He confidently proclaims to all around, die, it is finished. This is my property, it's all mine, and I have paid it in full. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and cried out to tell us die, he completed all of these pictures. He was God's servant who obediently executed all the duties required of him. Philippians 2 8 says that he humbled himself as a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. That Jesus performed his Father's will by becoming the sacrifice for sins. He was that prophetic artist who fulfilled all the Old Testament foreshadowings and pictures concerning himself and he performed the masterpiece of salvation. He was the champion athlete who finished the race that was set before him. He finished the work of salvation flawlessly so that we may benefit from him. He was that victorious soldier who defeated sin, death, and hell. Jesus conquered them by the power of the cross and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his crucifixion. He was that redeemer merchant who went into the slave market of sin and put down the full payment of his blood and bought us up from slavery, and because of the cross, we are princesses and princes of the Most High, amen? This is all a picture of Jesus. Now here's the question I have. Was God the Father forever satisfied by the sacrifice of his son? Now that's an important question. If God pushed back his wrath and was temporarily satisfied by the blood of goats and bulls and lambs, was he forever satisfied by his son? And I want you to see something really beautiful. It's one of my favorite theological uh, things, pictures to see. I want us to leave Mount Calvary and at the same time visit Mount Moriah. Could you put that up please? The next slide, Jesus is dying on Mount Calvary. He's just said my mission is completed. On a different mountain, we have that tabernacle, right? That, that mobile home is now a permanent home. And every dimension of the tabernacle is up to date in the temple as well. This is the temple on Mount Moriah. So let me share this with you. In Matthew 27, I'll, begin, I'll read in verse 50 and 51, you'll never be the same after you hear this. When Jesus cried again in a loud voice, this is right before he died, and we know in John's gospel uh, and in gospel accounts, we know that what he said was to tell us die. My mission is completed. When Jesus cried to tell us die in a loud voice and gave up his spirit, verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom I want you to understand what the gospel writers are trying to say when Jesus proclaimed my mission is completed on Calvary that 90 feet high 30 feet wide foot thick seamless curtain was torn into from top to bottom the gospel writers want you to be absolutely clear that it was God who ripped that curtain It wasn't an army of people from the bottom to the top. "Ah, I'm trying to rip this curtain. No, it was from 90 feet up that God would rip that curtain apart. And what was he doing? He was showing, now I am satisfied in the sacrifice of my son. Can I get an amen? There is no separation because of the son. Sin is forever forgiven because of the son. God is forever satisfied in the sacrifice of His Son. There is now no wrath. There is only reconciliation. In Jesus Christ, you have been saved and forgiven. And that's why Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? We are declared righteous when we receive Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So the question I'm going to ask again is, how is the crucifixion a demonstration of God's love? Well, we just looked at it. At the cross, God's holiness was satisfied. But there's another one. Okay, and put up the next slide. We see that at the cross, man's sin, humanity's sin, was transferred to someone else. We call that expiation. Remember, now propitiation died for us, right? Okay, but now expiation's still around, right? So here we have expiation. That other goat was brought to the center of Israel. And here, that same ceremony on Yom Kippur, on covering day, the other goat was placed and all of the national sins was transferred to this goat. And this goat then became accursed with all of the sins of Israel. That was the symbolic nature of it for that year. All of the sins of Israel was symbolically placed on this goat. And you know what they called this goat? They called it the scapegoat. We use that term today, right? Many of you, you understand what a scapegoat is. It's where you put all your blame, right? It's where all the blame goes to. Here, we see that the scapegoat was given all of the sins of Israel for that day. And Israel now was able to live a clean slate with God once more. The symbol is that God had forgiven and let let go that sins for the year, and the sins were transferred uh, transferred to another, a scapegoat, and that scapegoat (coughs) was led out of the camp into the wilderness to be seen no more. Okay, you can't see that, right? Seen no more, okay? So you see, Jesus is the scapegoat. He is the only human being that ever lived a perfect life. He was the God-man. He was 100% God. And he had the ability and he was 100% man, perfect man. So at the cross, God placed all of our sins upon his perfect sacrifice. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? And that was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say something like that? It was because all the sins of all of humanity was placed upon the Lord at the cross. God could not even look upon his son because of the sins that were placed on his scapegoat. God's infinite justice, his perfect wrath towards sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, Isaiah prophesies that Messiah, but he was wounded for our sins. He was bruised for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has placed on him the sins of all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, But God made Jesus to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, the truth is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Amen? Romans 5.10 says, For when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, God is gracious. He's provided a way to be reconciled to him. It is through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Think about it this way. It is through Jesus' crucifixion that God becomes both just and justifier. That he becomes both things to us. Now Martin Luther asked, and this is where I close, how can we escape the justice of God? How will we escape the wrath of God? Who will save us from God? And when Martin Luther studied scripture, you know what he found? God will save me from God. You see, Martin Luther wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the greatest hymns of antiquity. And he answers this question in the second stanza. How can we escape the justice of God? Can we put it up? How will we escape the wrath of God? And this is what he says. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who this may be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord eternal rest his name from age to age the same, and he must win our battle. You see, we cannot win our own battle. We are fallen. We are broken. We are sinners. And so it requires an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It requires somebody outside of us to win our battles for us. Can I get an amen? Let's bar our heads and close our eyes just in a word of prayer quickly. Thank you, Father, we thank you for your justice, but we also, Lord, thank you for your grace. And we pray that as we think deeply upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would fill us with thankfulness and gratefulness, that we would understand that the propitiation and the expiation That is found in christ is something far beyond good news in the earthly sense but it truly is your gift to us we pray this in jesus name and all god's people said amen amen
0: thanks so much for joining us today we're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series and we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection, helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor, or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.